Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Before we start, a very quick program note. This episode is part of a much longer series. To be sure you get the whole story, we recommend that you jump back and start from episode one. Also, we want to invite any of our thousands of listeners who still use Facebook to join our friendly show group, which currently only has a couple of hundred fun-loving folks. Just search for the show's name. Finally, whether you do social media or not, please do drop us a line to tell us what you like or hate on the show at theparanoidstrain, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Okay, let's get going. Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. Back to the horror show. As our experts have pointed out, in the wake of the McMartin preschool conflagration... And again, in spite of the fact that literally no one involved in that entire years-long disaster was convicted of any crime... Anyway, after McMartin, the plague of accusations spread. In one particularly horrific case from Kern County, California, a vicious custody battle metastasized into a series of accusations perhaps even more lurid than the ravings of Judy Johnson in the McMartin case. Please note that, confusingly, this case involves children whose surname was Martin, but it's completely unrelated to the McMartin case. So to save the sanity of everyone else who reads quotes for the show, Jessard is going to synopsize what Debbie Nathan and her co-author have to say about the Martin Boyce case. Okay, here goes with the quoting. The boys claimed they were joined by as many as 10 other children. Then, all 27 people, including the abusers, would gather in a 10-by-12-foot bedroom, along with movie cameras, studio lights, and video camcorders. The boys were made to inhale 18-inch lines of cocaine or heroin, forced to drink a glass of whiskey and another of beer, and were given injections with syringes that left large bruises. They claimed to have been hung from boards and, as they screamed in pain and fear, repeatedly sodomized by several grown men. These same men would also penetrate the girls, who were also screaming, and would sometimes ejaculate more than ten times. All of this was memorialized on videotape, which the children had to watch. Then the Martin boys would say goodbye until their next visit. As you would expect by now, nobody ever saw any strange behavior from these children when returning from their father's house, where supposedly all of this was taking place in spite of the fact that they reportedly had just endured hours of incredible torture. And of course there was, say it with us, no physical evidence of any kind. At all. Not only that, the DA in the case noted that his deputies didn't like taping interrogations anymore because doing so could be so valuable to the defense. In other words, the more actual evidence was available, the less realistic these accusations became. So the solution was to fail to produce any of that interrogation evidence. How stunningly cynical. 
Agreed. But if you believe you're crusading for righteousness, it can feel like cutting corners is totally justified. Which is why this sort of moral panic come crusade is so dangerous. How dangerous? Well, the total lack of evidence didn't keep the jury in the Martin Boyce case from convicting on every count, more than 400 felonies. The judge proceeded to hand down sentences confining the defendants for between 273 and 400 years in prison. When asked why the sentences he handed down were so harsh, the judge said it was in reaction to his viewing of photos and other materials that proved the defendant's guilt. Funny that neither the jury nor any other person has ever reported seeing these pictures, which mysteriously disappeared in the aftermath of the trial. So, did he lie? Maybe. Or he imagined seeing the pictures based on the horrific testimony he had heard for God knows how many hours in his courtroom. If this subseries has taught us anything, it's that memory is weird. How did this Kern County situation end up? Eventually, it petered out due to two factors. First, once they had run out of family and friends to accuse, the Kern County kids started accusing the authorities themselves of being perpetrators. For example, one of the assistant district attorneys was identified as a baby-killing, child-molesting Satanist. Was she put on trial? Uh, no. Unlike that marshaled against the other defendants, this evidence was tossed aside without investigation. This is actually very similar to the way these sorts of scenarios have played out during other panics. Witch trials, for example, often ran aground when someone high-ranking or powerful was accused. Suddenly, the wild raving charges sounded absurd, but only after plenty of less prominent citizens' lives had been ruined. What was the other factor in this panic dying down? Oh, the awkward fact that several of the kids who were identified as satanic ritual murder victims turned up... alive. This combined with the total absence of any of the mountains of physical evidence that should have been available, the judge's statements notwithstanding, eventually led journalists like Debbie Nathan to retrace the history of the interrogations and testimony in the case, which followed a by now familiar pattern. That being, the kid's original testimony was totally reliable, but then after the adults got through helping them remember, again here we're going to quote the book, by then their utterances had nothing to do with their own feelings or experiences. Rather, what came from the mouths of babes were juvenile renderings of grown-ups' anxieties. One of these grown-up anxieties that fed the panic was adults' inability to recall what actually counted as normal in terms of childhood games related to uncomfortably sexual topics. It turns out, and again, I can't emphasize enough how sorry I am to be dragging you through all this icky stuff, but I honestly think it's important. Anyway, adults are terrible at remembering the sorts of vaguely sexual-ish stuff they might have engaged in with other kids when they themselves were little children. For example, undergraduate women were asked to recall the sorts of normal sex-related games they used to play as 7- to 10-year-olds, and frankly, the explicitness of some of what they described makes us uncomfortable enough that we don't want to force any of our beloved volunteers or Dana to read them. Suffice it to say, these normal games were far more explicit than anything the purported child victims in these cases reported, at least until the adults inadvertently started twisting up the kids' memories. Having said that, we now have to use perhaps the most uncomfortable phrase we've ever spoken, which is why, again, we're not going to pass the buck to anyone else. This has to do with the number one piece of physical evidence that was used to prove these kids had been molested, and that was, brace yourselves, anal winking. I know, I know. But I'm pretty sure you can guess what I mean there. When the children who had supposedly been abused in previous cases were examined by a self-proclaimed sex abuse expert, that expert testified that this sort of opening and closing action 
would only appear in children who had been repeatedly penetrated there by a person or object. I know, Jesus. Let's just all try and get through this, okay? But as soon as somebody bothered to check some randomly chosen, apparently not abused kids through routine checkups for similar responses, it turns out this winking response occurs naturally in more than half of the definitely unmolested children that were examined. Meaning that the most critical piece of so-called expert, so-called physical evidence was nothing of the sort. Once again, no physical evidence of any molestation of any kind at all. Given that the physical evidence was so weak, we have to look deeper for some cultural reasons to explain why these utterly bizarre fantastical stories had so much purchase in the mainstream at the time. Of course, one of the fundamental ingredients in this whole stew would naturally be a nice, thick roux of anti-feminism. As the authors note, these accusations reflected a cultural fear that the sexual revolution had created a sort of evil modern succubus for whom dominating men wasn't enough. She must also engage in the mortification of innocent children. But of course, on the other hand, the people who were broadly behind what most of us would think of as the right side in terms of empowering women, addressing long-standing issues with the judicial systems ignoring of women's issues, etc., were, as we noted, part of the reason why the situation started snowballing in the first place. Recall when we discussed earlier the state of affairs prior to the late 70s, When women who were victims of physical or sexual abuse or incest were treated intolerably, with the father-slash-perpetrators being treated with kid gloves, economic and other factors weighing against justice for the victims, etc. If you've listened to this show for a while, you can probably recognize that, inevitably, things start going really, really badly the second any idea becomes unquestionable absolute dogma. The Birchers could never back away from the idea that the communist takeover was seconds away, no matter how clear it was that the Soviets were failing. QAnon now can't accept that the storm isn't happening, no matter how many deadlines Q blows through, or how resolutely Trump continues not being president. Please note the show was recorded in early 2023, so if he becomes president again in the future and you listen to this, we are very sorry. In these preschool and other satanic molestation cases, the unquestioned dogma was that kids can never lie about sex abuse. Or, to be fair to these very young, incredibly impressionable children, it might be better to say, kids can never have wrong impressions about what they've experienced and what they imagined, or was loaded into their brains by inept but well-meaning parents or other authority figures. On top of this, there was another unfalsifiable, contrapositive assumption that if some kids who were supposed to be among the abused deny that they were abused, they are always either lying or mistaken. This situation came up over and over. Recall earlier how an interviewer suggested one kid was maybe not brave enough to provide stories of his presumed abuse, after which point he started generating those stories. So you can see how realizing that incest victim daughters were often pressured to recant could, as the pendulum swung the other way, create a new dogma where, to correct for this, children could never make up these stories and therefore must always be believed when they make accusations or when others encourage them to make accusations, which in turn caused just as much pain, but in the other direction. But surely that leaves another category of these crimes, right? And what would that be? Presumably, those where the suspects actually confessed to the crimes they were accused of. You would think those would be different, yes. But it turns out they pretty much worked the same way that the McMartin and other scenarios did. Before we dive in, a quick aside about those who feel innately guilty in stressful situations. And by those, I mean me, fearful Jesuit. 
You know how you're driving down the highway, obeying all traffic laws, and then a police car ends up in the lane behind you, and you become completely convinced that you are going to be pulled over, and then based on some crime you've committed that you weren't even aware of, you'll end up doing hard time for 7 to 10 with the possibility of parole after 5 years for exemplary behavior? Nope. I think most of them don't know what that's like. You freak. Yeah, I've come to understand that my version of this experience is rather more extreme than others who just experience a slight discomfort when, as law-abiding citizens, they have a close brush with the cops. But then it seems fair to take it as a given that other people like me exist, at the very least, and my palms start sweating the very second that a black and white appears in my lane. As an aside, I also occasionally suffer from nightmares where I've been imprisoned for a crime that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt I am guilty of, and I'm tortured not so much by the confinement as the fact that I know that I'm guilty, deserving this punishment and more, but I'm not able to remember exactly what horrible thing it is that I did. He awakens from these periodic dreams completely drenched in sweat and gasping for breath. So what we're saying is, if you want to find someone to help you commit a crime, Jesuit's probably not your guy. I would crack under the mildest questioning like a fucking egg, Dana. So, of course, in researching this topic, I have often imagined myself in a situation like the one the purported daycare satanic abusers found themselves in. Out of the clear blue sky, accused of the most horrendous crimes imaginable, with no warning or idea of why this is happening, and with the accusations coming directly from the mouths of innocent children who had been placed in my care. This is a situation so Kafka-esque that just reading about it makes you feel like a gigantic cockroach. I could guarantee you that in this scenario, I would appear to be the biggest ball of sweaty guilt you've ever seen. My trial would be over in seconds once the jury saw the angst-ridden panic freak show I presented in court. And so I feel incredible sympathy for all of those wrongly accused. But that last group, I still have trouble wrapping my mind around. Those who confess to crimes they haven't committed. If you're familiar with the work of the Innocence Project over the past few decades, you'll certainly be aware that, among its many other problems, our justice system has a real tendency to lock up those who, later evidence proves, cannot possibly have committed the crimes they were convicted of. But one surprising reason that has arisen time and time again is that people who are wrongly convicted sometimes actually confess to the crimes that they were innocent of. Surely most of us think this shouldn't happen in the absence of torture. Why confess to something you didn't do? But in case after case, whether due to pressure tactics by police, the confusion or possible mental issues afflicting the accused, or some other factor, confessions, even in death penalty cases, have turned out to be bogus. In light of our current topic, this brings us to a late 80s satanic panic story centered in a small, religious town in rural Washington state. The case concerned Paul Ingram, a local deputy sheriff, and was beautifully narrated in Lawrence Wright's book, Remembering Satan. Dana? Give us the skinny. The whole thing started when Paul's daughters, Erica and Julie Ingram, 18 and 22 years old, accused their father of extensive, years-long sexual abuse. After extensive interviews that he seemed just desperate to cooperate with, Paul was eventually convinced that he must have done these things that he didn't remember doing to his daughters. But that was just the beginning. Paul eventually recalled previously repressed memories of extensive, 
literally unbelievable ritual tortures that implicated numerous other adults from the area, including a number of other deputies. Of course, as you're already thinking, these recalled memories were eventually developed into yet another blood, sex, death, Satan orgy plot with no physical evidence whatsoever. So why the hell would Ingram have confessed to so many over-the-top crimes if there was really no evidence against him except the already highly suspect confessions of his daughters, each of whom potentially had emotional or mental issues of her own? From the jump, you can hear how Ingram's responses in interrogation made his fellow officers feel like he had something to hide. He could not remember having ever molested his daughters. If this did happen, we need to take care of it, Ingram said. But he added, I can't see myself doing this. If he did molest the girls, then there must be a dark side of me that I don't know about. These responses were disturbingly equivocal, a variation on the maybe I did and maybe I didn't theme that police often hear from suspects who are bargaining for a plea. Like, given those sorts of questions, who would answer that way? Maybe in spite of his being a cop, the guy suffers from fearful Jesuit police panic syndrome. On the other hand, Ingram's first interview ended with plenty of damning and convincing confessions. By the time the interview ended many hours later, Paul Ingram had confessed to having sex with both his daughters on numerous occasions, beginning when Erica was five years old. He had also talked about having impregnated his younger daughter Julie and taken her to have an abortion in the nearby town of Shelton when she was 15. All of these statements accorded in a general way with the charges his daughters had made, although Ingram's confessions were still maddeningly mired in conditional phrases. But of course, if this were simply a case of child sexual abuse by a seemingly upstanding pillar of the community father, that would unfortunately make it a kind of dime a dozen story that we wouldn't be talking about all these decades later. He would have been given a few years in the slammer and the case would have been long forgotten. What matters here is how Ingram's initial semi-confession to unfortunately banal sex crimes rapidly built into yet another literally unbelievable satanic cult case. Let me guess. The daughters suddenly remembered hooded figures, blood, knives, ritual slaughter. Yeah, that happened. But what's weirder is that Ingram himself was actually the primary source for the ever-expanding, ever-less-believable scenarios in this case. As he searched his mind to recover previously repressed memories, he remembered ever more bizarre scenes, implicating not only himself, but a number of other prominent law enforcement officers and others in inexplicable satanic rituals. We hardly need mention by this point that all of these other named individuals were eventually cleared of all charges, but as usual suffered irreparable damage to their reputations and personal lives. So, how did this happen? How did this man end up generating, in his own mind, such horrific not-memory memories that were so real he subsequently not only confessed to them, but also implicated other innocent people? Well, there are a number of explanations. The first is just that Paul Ingram appears to have been a very suggestible dude. Like, if you outlined a scenario however bizarre and asked him to go prey on it, he would likely as not come back with a fully fleshed-out memory he had suddenly recalled, that put him in the middle of precisely the situation you laid out. In addition, or perhaps as a correlative, Ingram and his family were very active in a local Pentecostal congregation for whom invisible satanic forces were a humdrum fact of everyday existence. Research indicates that those who are heavily involved in this sort of religious environment, where you're simply expected to engage in a daily struggle against the many demons who are out to destroy you and everything you care about, are much more likely candidates for easy self-deception and the implantation of false recalled memories. 
Some of the quotes Wright gets for his book are hilarious if you don't remember that they ended up ruining lives, including Ingram's. For example, when it was suggested he might have, as part of his cultic activities, had a gay fling with one of the other officers he had accused. Have you ever had sexual relations with Jim Raby? Shoning asked. I don't think so, Ingram said, in that same puzzled tone that was becoming unbearable for the interrogators. I just hate to think of myself as a homosexual. Have you ever worn any of your wife's undergarments? Asked Shoning. I don't think so, Ingram replied. I'd say no. Or, addressing the question of any previous occultic involvement he might have had before these accusations began, Before your conversion to Christianity, were you ever involved in any kind of black magic? Ingram replied that there was a time when he had read his horoscope in the newspaper. Wow. Horoscopes. Truly, he is the most advanced sort of demonic necromancer. Regardless, once Ingram started supposedly remembering these things, it was off to the races. The prosecution kept expanding and expanding as Ingram named other perpetrators and continued even as the confessions started veering into self-parody. For example, Ingram eventually started naming the local canine units as part of the plot. Like, the dogs, not the handlers. As in, ooh, just read. The dogs were supposedly having sex with the cult's victims. The investigators didn't believe this, but instead of realizing that this might mean the whole thing was a bizarre fabrication and that everyone Paul named was innocent, they decided that Paul was even more insidious a manipulator than they had previously thought. The common wisdom in the department now was that Paul Ingram had controlled the investigation from the beginning. This latest series of disclosures was his master stroke, the thinking went. He had been protecting the cult all along. And by discrediting himself in this fashion, he would ensure that his testimony was completely worthless. And as you might expect, there were experts available to lend credibility to the prosecution's arguments. In this case, one Dr. Hammond of the University of Utah explained thus. What we are talking about here goes beyond child abuse or beyond the brainwashing of Patty Hearst or Korean War veterans. We're talking about people in some cases who were raised in satanic cults from the time they were born, often cults that have come over from Europe that have roots in the SS and death camp squads in some cases. The full extrapolation of Hammond's theory goes on to postulate that the mind control techniques used in such cults were developed by satanic Nazi scientists who were captured by the CIA after the war and brought to the United States. The main figure was a Hasidic Jew, Dr. Green, an alias for Greenbaum, who saved himself from the gas chambers by assisting his Nazi captors and instructing them in the secrets of the Kabbalah. Thus, a note of anti-Semitism, which is almost always present in demonology, was sounded. According to Hammond, multiple personalities have been deliberately created in satanic ceremonies. People say, what's the purpose of it? My best guess is that the purpose of it is that they want an army of Manchurian candidates, tens of thousands of mental robots who will do prostitution, do child pornography, smuggle drugs, engage in international arms smuggling, do snuff films, all sorts of very lucrative things, and do their bidding, and eventually... The megalomaniacs at the top believe create a satanic order that will rule the world. As we have noted time and time again, the leap from this stuff to QAnon madness is more of a short hop at best. Wright reinforces what we've already learned from more sober voices throughout this topic, pointing out way back in 94 that in spite of by then 60, by now nearly 90, years of research, no one has proved that repressed memories are even a thing. He also makes some other interesting points that, you would think, might have helped to nip this thing in the bud. 
For example, the fact that the numbers suggested for murder victims related to the satanic panic never really added up. Soon, hundreds of victims were accusing thousands of offenders. By the mid-80s, the annual number of alleged satanic murders had reached the tens of thousands. As a result of information provided by a prison official in Utah, word circulated in the police workshops that satanic cults were sacrificing between 50 and 60,000 people every year in the United States. Although the annual national total of homicides averaged less than 25,000. And for that matter, why is it that people who have definitely, unquestionably been exposed to the most horrific situations and crimes imaginable, like verified, documented horrors that definitely happened, these people never have trouble remembering what they went through. In fact, many of them would love to have the possibility of repressing these memories, but they literally can't. They're forced to keep recalling everything in crystal clear, unforgettable technicolor throughout the rest of their lives. Judges and juries all over the country are struggling with the concept of repression and the reality of recovered memories. In Salem, the conviction depended on how judges thought witches behaved, notes Paul McHugh who is director of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Johns Hopkins University. In our day, the conviction depends on how some therapists think a child's memory for trauma works. McHugh contends that most severe traumas are not blocked out by children, but are remembered all too well. He points to the memories of children from concentration camps and, more recently, to the children of Chowchilla, California, who were kidnapped in their school bus and buried in sand for many hours. They remembered their traumatic experience in excruciating, haunting detail. So why the fuck didn't this undeniable, even then obvious fact, make any of the law enforcement prosecutors or experts question this evidence-free phenomenon? So what happened to Ingram? In the end, even when he started to realize that his memories were maybe a function of his religious background, the stress of the accusations, and his uniquely hypnotizable brain, Ingram was still loath to accept that the whole thing might be a delusion, since if he fought the charges, his daughters would be forced to testify, and he wasn't willing to put them through that. Ingram ended up convicted on charges related to the more banal child sex abuse his daughters initially accused him of, no satanic cult involvement necessary. The book makes it clear that Wright is doubtful that even these crimes actually transpired, given the weird politics of the Ingram's home life, the mental health issues, and constantly changing stories of the accusers and other factors. But, perhaps because there was a lingering sense among law enforcement that he had gotten away with covering up something much bigger, darker, and more Satan-shaped, the judge threw the book at him, handing down a sentence of 20 years rather than the expected three and a half that would normally be applied to similar defendants. Ingram was released in 2003 after 15 years and still maintains his innocence. Ironically, this case is, to this day, cited as evidence that the satanic panic was based on real, genuine cult abuse because unlike almost all other cases, Ingram was convicted. But of course, he wasn't convicted of any of the Satan stuff. One more topic to cover before we put this behind us. What was the legacy of this horrendous moral panic? Well, of course, the impacts varied as much as did the victims. One excellent CBC podcast, creatively titled The Satanic Panic, covers the by now familiar story of one small rural Canadian town. It was good background research for us, but we didn't want to dive into its particular tale because the story in this case is so similar to the others we've already covered. 
But there were two elements related to the panic that this reporter crystallized particularly well in her series. First, she tracked down some of the former children who were involved in satanic panic cases to see how the experience had affected their lives. Their testimony is riveting and very moving. One woman who had previously believed she had put the whole thing behind her was blindsided in later life by the impacts that these implanted memories were continuing to have on her as an adult. Interestingly, one of the things that caused her to re-examine this part of her childhood was reading Debbie Nathan's book. It's fascinating to hear how this person managed to re-examine some of her most baseline beliefs about her past and was willing to reconsider her convictions. And hearing how banal stories turned into satanic allegations in her case is intriguing as well. Kristen understands those images that came up under hypnosis differently now. They were asking about animals, and I had mentioned that a real memory that I had from preschool was that we did do a camping trip in the yard of the preschool when I was about four years old. What I remembered is that in the middle of the night, um, we found out that the principal of the school had killed a snake, uh, a rattlesnake. And if you go camping in certain areas, I'm guessing that's not an uncommon thing to have happen, that you kill a rattlesnake. But once under hypnosis, this story of uh, killing a snake became... um, I reinterpreted it through a kind of a ceremonial satanic framework where we drank the blood after he killed a snake. And she now believes the satanic elements of her disclosures were borrowed from movies and stories she'd heard. How does she see the experience from her current vantage point? I think the story is resolved, but the effects of the story are still, they still hang out a little bit. And, and in some ways, it defined parts of my personality. And it's a, it's a kind of a good story. Like, you can really kind of be like, people can, you know, they tell their stories like, hey, I had this crazy thing happen to me. And I'm like, yeah, check this out. <laughs> I think the whole experience, like for me, my I feel like I've been traumatized. But it wasn't by my preschool. It was by the psychologists and the social hysteria. The podcast also tells the story of a 2005 article in the L.A. Times, where one of the McMartin child accusers discussed his experience under a headline simply reading, I'm sorry. An article that was, once again, written by none other than Debbie Nathan. Here's some of what he said. I remember telling them nothing happened to me. I remember them almost giggling and laughing and saying, oh, we know these things happened to you. Why don't you just go ahead and tell us? Anytime I would give them an answer that they didn't like, they would ask again and encourage me to give them the answer they were looking for. Kyle said he felt ashamed that he was being dishonest. But, he explained, whatever my parents wanted me to do, I would do. And I thought they wanted me to help protect my little brother and sister who went to McMartin. My parents were very encouraging when I said that things happened. It was almost like saying things happened was going to help get these people in jail and stop them from what they were trying to do to kids. Also, there were so many kids saying all these things had happened that you didn't want to be the one who said nothing did. You wouldn't be believed if you said that. The other aspect that this podcast covered particularly well was the intransigence of the adults who spearheaded these interrogations, investigations, and arrests. Some of the leopards changed their spots in the intervening years, but in the case of the Canadian panic that podcast investigated, the law enforcement officer who was the prime mover in getting this whole thing started wasn't giving an inch even today. The courts have been clear. The vast majority of the charges should never have been laid let alone prosecuted. The RCMP-led task force concluded hysteria had shaped the case. And the FBI determined that the rash of seemingly similar cases could not be supported by evidence. And yet. I think anytime you can't determine the truth, 
or you have a result that is inconclusive, there's there's always going to be questions. Investigator Claudia Brighton. If you sat down in a room with the parents, even one set of parents who had to endure this whole process and dragging their kid to court and watching their child throw up in between testifying on the stand, if you dare suggest that this was all made up, I would fear for your safety because they would not tolerate it. And nor should they. We were aware that there were some unusual allegations that were made, and my job was to determine as much as possible what had happened. I I believe the truth wins in the end. And, you know, there are forces in the universe, and um, I think the truth is one of the most powerful forces in the universe. What did you make of, of where it all ended up, and with almost all the charges being overturned on appeal? Things are often overturned just based on errors in law. And uh, so while it looks on the surface like, you know, there wasn't a reason for these individuals to be convicted in the first place, that's absolutely untrue. The court accepted. Appeals do often hinge on errors of law, but that was not the case with Martinsville. You know, in doing your best, sometimes you, you don't get it right. You can't. You can't know. But there's no doubt in my mind that a lot of things happen at that daycare. There's no doubt in my mind that we only scratched the surface. But I believe there were far more individuals involved than Travis Sterling. This was bigger than Travis Sterling. So, by extension, don't expect the QAnons to recant and come to their senses anytime soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.